There's a belief here in Silicon Valley that it's all about move fast and break stuff. Get things in, get it done quickly. Action is better than inaction. And while it's true that getting a product or service out there before it's absolutely finally complete might be the best approach, but that also misses on one critical piece, and that's what's to do as you learn and how to incorporate it back into your product or service. Want to learn how to do that? We've got the perfect person today, all on the podcast. Welcome to the Founders Place Podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. Now here's your host, Todd Wills. Todd Wills. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited that we have Chris on. He is the author of Blitzscaling. He is a phenomenal entrepreneur, investor, blogger. He's been there, done that. The guy talks to everybody, and I was excited to bring him in and have a conversation. One of the things that we talked about was this idea that I said in the intro. There's this notion that activity is better than inactivity. And yes, that's true, but people also miss what's the next step. And it's critical to this idea of blitzscaling. He also says, and I'll give something away, that one of the most important signs of success as an author is when people use the term that you've created wrongly. I just love that because actually that's what's happening. People are using blitzscaling in the wrong way. Want to learn how to do it right? Chris is going to tell you how. Chris, just like we start this with everybody else, tell us who are you and why the heck are you here? So my name is Chris Yeh, and I like to tell people that I am an author, an investor, an entrepreneur, a blogger, and ultimately a family guy with a bunch of kids and my wife and everything like that. And the reason I'm here is I love meeting and talking with interesting people who do interesting things. So when you and I met up at an event, I think it was just a month or two ago, I thought, I would love to sit down and have a conversation with Todd. And fortunately, I had a little bit of an accident with a torn Achilles tendon. It delayed things. But now that I'm recovered enough to sit on my couch and record, I'm glad we're doing this. Perfect. Well, I love that as well. And, you know, all, all best for your recovery. One of the things I'll just call out is I've been impressed at how you've given sort of a weekly update on your blog as to what's been happening with you. And, and for anyone out there that is uh, – inspirational leader, someone who's writing, talking, thinking, speaking for a living. Uh, I just got to say, it's one of those things is really great to see you get very personal on there and talk about what you were going through and how you were struggling with it and what was happening with your recovery. And that little personal touch goes a long way. And I think people make, makes people feel really connected to you. So not the point of this podcast, but kudos for you for doing it, man. That was great. Well, I do think that this is one of the things that actually is good about social media. There's a lot of people saying negative things about social media these days. And sure, some of them are actually correct. Social media does have a tendency to increase divisiveness. And I think it's walled us off into bubble chambers and things like that. But I guess echo chambers and bubbles. Bubble chambers. I like the sound of that. Bubble chambers. I think there's a blog post there. I think there's a blog post there. But one of the things I did was I really wanted to go ahead and share the journey I was going through, not just because I feel like everyone's really super interested in my life, but because I believe in living a life which is public where I can. And one of the great things that happened out of it is so many people reached out to me who said, oh, I've had this injury myself and I had long conversations with them and learned how they went through it. I have this whole 
web page where I've recorded all these different things about what to do when you suffer this particular injury. And then other people just out of the blue said, oh, well, we'd love to come over and visit, take you outside, push you through the park, make sure that you're not just by yourself during this period. So social media has really been a huge boon during this period when I've been laid up. Well, that's, that's fantastic. So it, it's easy to fall into the negatives of social media. And it's nice to hear an inspiring story of where this is actually working to your favor and to your benefit. So kudos for that. And again, you know, uh, all the best for your recovery. Okay, so let's, let's, let's talk turkey. Let's talk business, man. Let's, um, let's get into this. I just wanted to spend some time, I think we'll spend a good amount of time talking about blitzscaling. So first, for those who aren't as familiar with the book, tell us a little bit, give us the synopsis of the book, and then let's dive into it. Sure. Blitzscaling is the book that my friend and co-author, Reed Hoffman, and I put out in October of last year. So it's been out for Wow, closing in on a year now, about nine, 10 months. Wow. And the reception's been great. A lot of people are using the term. I like to tell people that one of the most important signs of success as an author is when people use the term that you've created wrongly. Because it means that it's popular enough that people who haven't actually read the book feel like they have to use it. I love it. So how have you heard it used wrongly? So these days, a lot of times people use blitzscaling as a synonym for either growing really fast or spending a lot of money on advertising. And that is not what it is at all. But the fact that they feel compelled to use the term to mean that is great. Perfect. Well, I'm going to wait for the day where somebody starts talking about beyond producting and then uses that poorly. And then I can claim success. That will be the time to plant my flag. So. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Now what, but now what blitzscaling actually means. Yes, that's the question I was going to ask. I figured that we would get to that. What blitzscaling actually means, according to the definition of the book, is the pursuit of rapid growth by prioritizing speed ahead of efficiency in the face of uncertainty. And the reason that blitzscaling is so important is we've tried to figure out what it is that allows companies, primarily here in Silicon Valley, but in other parts of the world, to grow so quickly. If you look at companies like Amazon up in Seattle or Airbnb and Facebook and Google here in the Bay Area or companies like Alibaba in China, the question is, how have they become so big, so successful, so fast? And for us, blitzscaling is the answer. Uh, in a world in which everyone's connected together, more and more markets are winner-take-most or winner-take-all. And what that means is if it's a winner-take-most or winner-take-all market, whoever gets to critical scale first is going to be the market leader. And blitzscaling is all about how do we move as fast as possible so we can be the winner. So the thing I'm interested in, the, in this is a really good place for us to start is there must have been a – a wellspring, uh, a genesis moment for you to actually start this book. What was the, what was the thing you were starting to see or starting to experience on the marketplace that made you go, okay, wait, I, I think we're onto something here. So what what happened and what triggered this? We started writing the book in 2015, and what really happened and catalyzed this is, I Aileen Lee over at Cowboy Ventures came up yes. with this term unicorn. 
to, which is used to designate a privately held company worth more than a billion dollars. And this just became a huge thing. And boy, you know, that's the difficult part with coining a term like unicorn. You can't trademark it and make money every time you, someone uses it. Otherwise, Aileen would be rich beyond imagination. Yes, she would. But the term unicorn was coined. All of a sudden, people were saying, wow, why are there so many billion dollar companies? Where are they coming from? How are they growing so quickly? And when people started trying to come up with the answers for it, the answers were really unsatisfying, at least to, to Reed and I, because they would say things like, well, you know, it happens in Silicon Valley because there's so many smart people here, or because there's all these great investors, or because there's this culture that embraces risk-taking and is tolerant of failure. And all those things are true, but they're true of a lot of other places. And we said, hold on, you know, this really doesn't tell the full story we should explore this new phenomenon and try to figure out, okay, is it part of a broader pattern and what are the factors that actually are driving this? And that's where blitzscaling came from. Okay. So there was this natural curiosity then in 2015, right? We had unicorn, this great idea that came out. Um, and you're right. It'd be great if Eileen could get a penny for every time that that was used because she would, she could retire 10 times over, right? Um, and, and I love that that's one of those terms that has now become part of the, the tapestry language here in Silicon Valley. So as you started scratching into this and looking and saying, okay, wait a minute, I'm not satisfied with the answers. What was the path that you took to start coming up with that solution? Was it just a series of conversations? Was it research? Was it a mirage or a myriad of the two of those? What were the two, the approach that you took? Now, so what we did was we said, let's start looking at the concrete examples. Okay. And for us, we're not academics. We don't go out there and do a bunch of regression analyses to figure mm -hmm. things out. What we do instead is to look at the case studies of the companies involved and try to see what we saw as the common through line. And so we looked at all the companies that we had experience with, and we'll talk about this later on. Both Reed and I have been involved in the startup world for a very long time. It's coming in on probably 26, 27 years now. And so we were able to think about all the companies we've seen come and go and succeed during that time period. And we just started thinking about all those different companies and saying, well, what do we see are the common threads? Okay. So with going through those sort of use cases... So what I'd be interested in hearing is let's start going through some of the commonalities, but I'd also love to hear uh, any thoughts you've got around some of the obstacles or even anchors that companies have that keep them from succeeding in these opportunities. Absolutely. So I think that one of the formative experiences that really drove this is Reed's experience at PayPal, which I witnessed uh, not firsthand, but relatively close at hand because I'd known many of the founders of the company when we were at Stanford together. So it was a company that I followed from very early on. And what's interesting about PayPal is people had a lot of the same criticisms of PayPal back then that they would of other dot-com companies. They'd say, look at companies like Pets.com and PayPal. They're just throwing money around like crazy. PayPal, for example, was very well known because they had a sign-in bonus. So when you signed up for PayPal, you got $10. If you referred a friend, the friend got $10 and you got another $10. And so people saw this as evidence of these crazy venture-backed companies spraying their money around 
Why are they doing it? It's all going to end badly. For Pets.com, it did. And for PayPal, it became a company that went public that eBay acquired for $1.6 billion and which is worth over $100 billion today. So a very different story altogether. And Reed's insights from being inside PayPal and understanding the motivation behind why they were doing this is the specific from which we extract the general. So the specific thing for PayPal was this is a payments network and the most important thing is to get as many people as possible onto the payments network so it's actually useful because a payments network with one member is useless. A payments network with a million members is something that's actually valuable. So we've got to do whatever we can to get people in as quickly as possible to reach that critical mass. And it's from that specific example that we then extract, well, why is it so important to get to critical mass? Oh, it's because it's a winner-take-most or winner-take-all market, whether it's due to network effects or some other sort of factor. Okay, well, how do you get there quickly? Well, you do things that other people may see as wasteful but are actually designed to give greater speed to the company to allow you to win that race. Okay. All right, so there's a lot to unpack there, right? Because I think you could listen to this anecdotally and go, great, I, I then should go buy my way into the market, right? I should go in and just acquire as many people. So look at me personally doing Founders Place. I should go in and just buy a bunch of lists, get as many people on board, get as many people into it. Now, I'm being sophomoric in my approach because this is, of course, the wrong way to go. But you could look at it and say this is the way to go is just to bring in as many people and get to that sort of uh, tipping point. But there's got to be more to it than that, and that actually has to be the wrong way. So tell us why that is. Absolutely. So the key is in that phrase, a winner-take-most or winner-take-all market. And the reason is, why is something a winner-take-most or winner-take-all market? Yeah. Why is it that one particular market, for example, consumer social networking, is a winner-take-most market with Facebook standing high above all the rest of its competitors in the United States? And why is a very different market not a winner-take-most or winner-take-all market? So, for example, if we were to look around, it would say, gosh, is the Android phone market, a winner-take-most or winner-take-all market? Not really. There's many different manufacturers. However, the mobile phone operating system market is winner-take-most or winner-take-all. So what are the things that cause these? Oh, fascinating. So when we start digging into that, what we do is we look and we say, well, what are the reasons why something becomes winner-take-most or winner-take-all? There has to be something where scale confers a super linear benefit. Right? We're used to thinking about there being economies of scale. You grow bigger, you can pay less for your product, you can sell more efficiently. There's some efficiencies that mean that getting bigger is logical. That's why so many big companies have grown over the years. But that's not enough to account for a winner-take-most or winner-take-all market. So the reason it's a winner-take-most or winner-take-all market is because when you get to that critical stage, you can build a competitive moat that's so strong that nobody could ever catch up. The easiest, ex uh, easiest example of this are, are the network effects, of course. Uh, when you think of a company like Craigslist, which generates a billion dollars a year in revenue and hasn't bothered to change a single thing about the company in well over 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Craigslist is kind of a phenomenal example in that regard. So, when you started looking at this and you were going through the case studies, the use cases here, 
I know you explored like Alibaba was one of the examples that you use. So this wasn't relegated to just a Silicon Valley effect. You really looked at this from a global perspective. What did you see was a nuance in terms of other geographies and other markets that sort of played with the model that you were developing with, with all the research you were doing? Yeah. And it was very important to us to look globally from the start. Yeah. Because our goal was not to just explain a Silicon Valley specific phenomenon, which, while interesting, is not necessarily that impactful in the world. It was to explain a global phenomenon. And what we found is that the same general principles apply, but the details will often differ from geography to geography. So take China, for example, and Alibaba. A pattern that we saw with Alibaba, which we now see being repeated at other companies in other regions of the world, is that when you are a growing blitzscaling company in a less developed market, many times you actually have slower growth up front because you are investing in the infrastructure for things like payments and logistics. You can't just say Visa and MasterCard and UPS take care of it in many other parts of the world. Right. And so a company like Alibaba has to produce its own logistics system, has to produce its own payment system. And those things become really strong competitive moats that actually allow them to grow even faster later on. So a pattern we see outside of Silicon Valley sometimes is slower growth initially and then faster growth later on. Now, that tends to form regional companies because, of course, if you have slower growth in the beginning, you're going to be at a disadvantage relative to someone in the United States who's sprinting ahead. But in the case of an Alibaba, where you're serving a China market, or a Mercado Libre, where you're serving a Latin American market, or let's think about the Middle East, you have a, 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 a company like Souk, which is serving that particular market, you're not competing head-to-head with Amazon and U.S.-based companies. You're in a different language in a different region, and you have the space to actually grow and develop and then grow at a greater rate later on. So it, it appears that in some of the other regions around the world, you have this, um, we'll use your, your bubble again, right? Almost a bubble effect where you're working within this region, you have an opportunity to grow regionally and not worry about some of the larger competitive threats, build your infrastructure. And then once you've shown that up, then you can go in and have this really hyper growth mode because you've built your infrastructure, you've built your foundation, you've created that competitive moat. Exactly. So for Alibaba, Alipay becomes a competitive advantage. For Mercado Libre, uh, Mercado Pago becomes a competitive advantage because all of a sudden, now the other people who are coming into the market after you, if they want to take payments, it's actually easier for them to work with you than it is to try to build it themselves. And that gives you a privileged position in the marketplace, much like Amazon has a privileged position in the marketplace here in the United States, thanks to its mastery of logistics and technology infrastructure. So what are, as companies are thinking about this, what are some of the, again, I called them anchors, maybe you've got another turn of, turn of phrase, but the things that get in our own way, like what are the big examples you saw? Because there are, there's a reason they're unicorns, right? Yes. And not horses or zebras, right? <laughs> they're a rare beast, even if they're a little more familiar around here these days, they're still a rare beast. And so it's clear that not everybody's doing this. So what are the things that are holding people back? 
So in our book, we list six different factors, four growth factors and four growth limiters. And what holds you back are an absence of growth factors or the presence of growth limiters, simply enough. Right. And I'll go over them really briefly because I don't want to take up all our time. We want to have a great conversation, not just have me spew about the book. But the, the growth factors are the market size. You've got to have a big market that's growing fast. There's the distribution. You have to have some way of getting out into the market to get people to adopt the product. You need to have gross margins that allow you to pay for that growth and hopefully earn a good profit on what you're doing. And you need some form of long-term competitive advantage. Usually it's a network effect, although sometimes it is customer lock-in or some form of land grab. And those are the growth factors. And the more that those are present, the more likely it is that you can blitz scale. Obviously, if you have a tiny market, you're never going to get to be a $20 billion company. Yeah. Yeah. The other two things are the growth limiters, and they're the things that can trip you up even if you have the growth factors. So, for example, the two growth limiters we identify are a lack of product market fit and a lack of operational scalability. And those two things can trip you up. And there's plenty of examples of companies that have been tripped up by both. For lack of product fit, you can think of a company like Groupon, which has pretty much every growth factor you could want sewn up and was at one point the fastest growing company in history by revenue growth, but where the fundamental product was just not something that was very good for either the consumers or the merchants. Yeah. And on the conversely, you can look at a company like Friendster, which got a lot of things right had this notion of a social network, which obviously, as everyone knows, is one of the most valuable things in the world, but made poor technology choices and ended up in a situation where an individual Friendster page would take over a minute to load. Well, just imagine if Facebook took a minute to load. How much would you be using it? Not very much. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I love about C-Suite Radio, I mean love about C-Suite Radio, is our sponsors. That's right. Those are the people that put time, effort, money, resources, and their faith in this podcast. So I would really appreciate if you listen to one of them today. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the interview. Yeah, I remember some of those early days of Friendster in particular, and uh, and I know those have been somewhat storied in terms of the, the IT and infrastructure solutions that they made or didn't make in uh, in their growth and how they were they were sort of mis mismanaging or mis um, understanding what the potential was for that market and I love the Groupon example too because that's spot on so you know it's interesting uh, having talked at like Saster this year one of the things that was really fascinating was hearing people talk about category kings right winning your category and the panel that I was on kind of called bullshit on it and said category is great and it's great to be a category king, but where the the most organizations are missing is this idea of product market fit, right? And one of the things that we see around here is this sort of ready fire aim approach where people build a solution and then they've got to go find the problem that it's going to go solve. And, And I think we see this quite often where the fit's just never there you build a product, you build an infrastructure, you keep moving things along, but you've never quite figured out what it is the customer is going to use a delight in. 
Yeah. And I think that that is spot on. I think that ideally you begin with the market and especially the customer need in mind. Uh, now, it's always possible that maybe you've built something great and you could find a way to retrofit it. And PayPal is an example of that. PayPal yeah. was actually built to exploit Max Levchin's genius when it came to cryptography. And the idea was Max is building this incredible cryptographic solution and we're going to use it to encrypt data on mobile phones. And Reed was a founding board member. He said, why does anyone need that? And so they said, okay, okay, we're going to try something different. How about if we use Max's cryptography to allow us to do safe payments uh, that people can beam back and forth between yeah. their Palm Pilots. And Reed said, okay, if we go to a restaurant in Palo Alto, which is ground zero for Palm Pilots, how many people at that table are going to have a Palm Pilot and then use it to beam money to each other to settle up at the end of the night? Like maybe one table out of 20. So that's not a market either. They're like, well, what are we going to do? <laughs> well, we got to keep trying stuff. And eventually they became, well, what if we did payments via email? Because everyone has email. And they tried that. And what really made it work is they figured out that actually eBay was a solution uh, was a solution that needed a complementary solution for handling payments and the rest is history but it took them four different pivots and five different CEOs over the course of a year to get to that point so it's much better to start with a real consumer need in mind now when you have that need you may want to launch a product early that isn't fully polished yet, right? This is the classic launch a product that embarrasses you because you can learn faster from it. But the whole point is not the worst product wins. The point is the fastest wins. And getting a product out there faster only works if you're able to learn from it and improve that product faster than someone who just sat in a lab trying to build a perfect product on their own. Yeah, one of the things that I found through research for the book was this, you know, commonly referred to as sunk cost fallacy or gambler's dilemma. And it plays against what you just talked about, which is this idea to sort of go out quick, learn, iterate, and evolve. And what I found a lot of founders doing was sort of doubling down on their uh, approach saying, okay, we've made a bet on this product and I'm going to keep betting on it until it pays off. Even if the data, the science, my intuition, my customers, my team, my product team, everybody is telling me something different. I'm going to keep betting on this until it finally pays off. And then they end up building a sort of bridge to nowhere. They build a product that doesn't meet a need in the market, doesn't delight the customer, doesn't have a price point that works. Um, and they've invested a lot of time, effort, and energy in something that fundamentally should have been jettisoned or evolved a long time ago, several steps before, and then gone in a slightly different direction. Yeah, as you put it, it's the gambler's fallacy. In theory, if you keep going to the roulette wheel and betting on black every time and doubling your bet every time you lose, you can't possibly lose if you have an infinite bankroll. But nobody has an infinite bankroll. <laughs> I do think that one of the pieces of guidance, which is not in the book, but is uh, from a related thing, which is Reed's Master of Scale podcast. In Masters of Scale, Reed interviewed Stuart Butterfield, who, of course, is the co-founder and CEO of Slack, an enormously successful company, which, of course, started off as an enormously unsuccessful video game. And one of the things that Stuart said was, well, we just basically had to say, 
what are our beliefs? How can we win? And do we realistically think there's any chance we can do this? And they had a whole list of things that they were going to try. And with the game, they did all these different things to improve the game. And they improved it little by little, little by little. And at the end of the day, after going through the entire list, he just said, you know what? Nobody's telling me I have to hang it up, but I just don't believe we can get to where we need to get. We got to try something different. And having the discipline to do that when you still have plenty of money in the bank is rare, but very valuable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's one of those things where, again, this is why some of these companies become, you know, Harvard Business Review models and others don't, right? Because the tenacity, the the grit that it takes a leader to make that kind of decision in in the rearview mirror, it's it's a great origin story, right? Remember the day when blank. But in reality, as you're going through that and you've got a team of people looking at you and they're saying, well, no, we can make this kind of work. And your intuition, your gut is telling you, no, 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 no. We've got to go in an entirely different direction. That's a rare leader that uh, often doesn't exist in, in today's culture or in any. And a big part of that, and this really speaks to the heart of this being a leadership podcast, is as a leader, do you have the ability to take that intuition you have that it's not going to work, to communicate it to your team, to have the credibility with your team to say, you know what, Todd's right or Stuart's right. Even though we could keep going on this, it is time for a change. And to then be able to sometimes lead them through multiple pivots before you get to the right thing. And each time it gets harder and harder to maintain that faith. And as a leader, you know, it's all those different elements. It's your history and track record. It's your ability to communicate. It's the fact that they like you. All of these things play an important role in being able to bring people through that journey. Yeah. So and that's one of the things I'd like to spend a little time on with you too, is as you've gone through these, you know, you've had your conversations and your partnership with Reed, as you've gone through and looked at these um, uh, examples and use cases, as you've talked to people in the market, I'm sure you started to see some threads of leaders that have led these organizations and almost like an archetype or persona of what is a successful leader look like? So let's, let's talk a little bit about, we've, we've talked and framed this up as the company, right? Well, now let's break it down into the person leading that. And I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on, all right, what does that person look like or what are the familiarities there for that kind of leader? Yeah. And that is such a fantastic question because leaders can come in all shapes and sizes and they can look very different. Mm -hmm. I think we have this stereotype of a leader in our minds and it's this person with this commanding magnetic personality uh, who stands up in front of the crowd, speaks eloquently, can move people to tears just with their words, decisive, doing all these different things. And this is the picture we have because we've seen it in so many different movies. Right? <laughs> Every time they make a movie about some famous leader, that's what that leader looks like. Right. But in the real world, that's not always the case. Yeah, there are plenty of great leaders who look like that. But what we found is it's not that personal charisma and magnetism that makes them a great leader, although that certainly helps. I mean, it's very useful to have that. The thing that really helps a leader in the case of a blitzscaling company, in the case of a company that's really growing that rapidly, is the ability to be what we call an infinite learner. And we use that term to refer to someone who understands that they're constantly learning and that the game they're playing is changing and that their success depends on being able to continually 
leave behind the previous game they were playing and learn a whole new set of rules and figure out a way to succeed. And one of the things that we see in this world is oftentimes, you know, there are great serial entrepreneurs who succeed time after time after time. And then there are entrepreneurs who have an enormous success their first time and then fail the second time. And the question is why? And a lot of times the answer is the entrepreneur succeeded at the first game because they were really good at figuring out how to succeed at that game. They pulled the right levers. But if they go on to the next game, and the next game actually has a very different set of rules, hmm. if they don't have the curiosity to say, I need to learn how this game is played, and I need to experiment, then they're going to just try to pull the same set of levers and drive the company off the cliff. So there's many examples of this in the annals of business failure. If you look at Al Dunlap, Chainsaw Al, famed figure from the 1990s. He was known for going into companies and quote-unquote turning them around. And he went to the company Sunbeam that makes like the, the warming blankets and, uh, and all the different uh, appliances and the like. And yeah. he drove it into the ground. Why? Because he just figured that there was just one playbook. You go to a place, you talk tough, you have your accountants wedge down the cost of, of doing things, you slash everywhere, and it makes you successful. And the answer is, that is successful if you went to a company that was bloated and was spending too much on everything and needed to be trimmed down. It doesn't work when you go to a company that's already well-managed, and then you basically cut its capabilities away. And, of course, yeah. he also had his accounting team fake the revenues. That also doesn't help. <laughs> but the thing is, an infinite learner looks at the situation, understands that every situation is different, doesn't believe we should do this because – I'm a brilliant genius and I know what to do, but rather says, you know what? I've been studying this and here are the things that I think are drivers of success and here's what I think we should do. And that's a much better way to lead. Well, it comes into that idea of curiosity, right? Which was some of the, one of the things that you and I were talking about in prep is having this sort of natural curiosity. We have a curiosity for people uh, these types of leaders need to have a natural curiosity in terms of trying to find their way through instead of just re relying on the old playbook, right? So there's a, there's a couple of examples of this in the show Silicon Valley where there's a few of those leaders that have like, they've just got the playbook and all they're doing is using the same playbook over and over and over again. And you see them make fun of it on the show because again, I think we've all experienced this in real life. It's like, okay, here's my playbook, here's what we're going to do, and here's how I'm going to run the business. And you're thinking, okay, that worked great over here. Your Sunbeam example is spot on. Great over here, but that playbook's not going to work here. We can tell you all the reasons why, but you're not interested in learning. Yeah, and by the way, I'm a huge fan of the character actor, Stephen Tobolowski. Yes. Who played that character so on Silicon fun. Valley. It's the box. Sell the box. <laughs> Brilliant character actor for a long time. He had a great podcast called The Stephen Tobolowski Show that he hasn't really done much with. In yeah. His, been a little too busy with his work, I think. But a phenomenal, phenomenal writer and narrator and just, I love his work. I'm glad we could kind of geek out on that. So that's, that's awesome. All right. So we talked a little bit about leaders. We talked a little bit about size of organization. We talked about some of the limiters. What have we missed? I mean, I think one of the things that's sort of fascinating is uh, I hear this as kind of the follow-up question, like, okay, great. You've teased my appetite, right? I'm excited about this as an idea. Okay. So clearly read the book, right? First one. Right? We're going to say that again. I'm going to say that again. Read the book. Second one, 
what do they start to do? How, did, how does a leader who is now looking at this and going, okay, what I'm doing today isn't working. Uh, I need to go sort of transform myself a bit. What are the steps they should start taking? or What are the next natural places for them to go? So I think that to be an infinite learner, which is, of course, as we described, what you need to be in order to succeed, what you have to do is to be self-aware about how you learn. And there are many different ways to learn. There's no one right way to learn. I think a lot of times people feel like there's one right way to learn, and that gets us in trouble. Some people, they love to learn by reading books. I love people who read books. I'm an author, but that doesn't work for everybody. Other people learn by going out and talking with folks. Fantastic. If that's your cup of tea, that's great. But there's people out there who are introverts who would say, I can never do that. And then there's other people who learn by doing, who experiment, rapidly iterate. All these are different learning styles. And the first thing you should do as a leader is figure out what learning style really works for you. And you probably already know if you think back to your days in school and you think back to the teachers and the classes Hmm. where you really learned well. And you think back to the other times in your life, maybe outside of school, where you learned really quickly. And that will probably tell you what kind of learning style you need. And based on that, you can then say, well, how do I then get the best resources in the world to do this? If it's books, what are the absolute best books I could read? If it's people to talk to, who are the best people in the world to talk to about this subject? We live in an incredible world where we're so interconnected that... You know, again, this is one of the things that made Silicon Valley great in the ancient days. Steve Jobs called up Hewlett Packard, talked to Bill Hewlett. Yeah. That's astonishing. And you can still do that today. In fact, it's so much easier than it was before. Well, one of the the prior people we had on the show, Karen Wickery, wrote a book on networking. And one of her approaches to networking is it's not a collection of business cards. It's not how many coffees you can have. It's about building your board of directors, your own personal board of advisors, that those people can come in. They're smarter than you. They're more sophisticated than you. They can come in and help steer and guide you in terms of your career, your next natural steps, your approach, your culture, whatever you're trying to evolve or grow, they're that group of people that you're going to go and naturally find they're going to help you go do that. So I think that that's a brilliant concept. And having a personal board of directors is absolutely one of the things that Reed even talks about in his book, The Startup of You, and it's something that he and I have talked about many times. The way he sees it, and the way I see it as well, perhaps a little less formally, he does tend to do everything a little more formally than I do, <laughs> is that you find people in your life who are really good at something, right? It's not like I'm going to put this person on my personal board of directors because they're just good at everything. And maybe they are good at everything, but you probably want to have a primary reason they're there. So you might say, this person really understands how to be self-aware, This person really understands how to focus. This person really understands how to rally others to a cause. And that's how you think of your board of directors, not as a collection of resumes and names, but rather as a collection of specific skills where you believe that you need help that you can learn from them. Yeah, that's, that's phenomenal. 
Uh, and then one of the other ones, the callbacks I'll make is uh, for those that are familiar with the podcast, I've been listening for a while. You want to go back in and check Jeff Egger's book. He wrote with General Stanley McChrystal, and he talks about the categories of leadership. And I was reminded as you were talking about the different styles of leaders that we have these you know, big, larger-than-life characters that we like to see portrayed in film and on television. And those tend to be the sort of callback memories we have. But as they describe in the book and he's described on the podcast, you know, there are many different types of leaders. And sometimes the even introverted leader who has the right idea um, and doesn't have the big personality can be just as effective, if not more so, than the big sort of bombastic, charismatic leader that we tend to know and, and uh, admire from afar. Exactly. And I can think of many different kinds of leaders, even from, say, this young generation of leaders. If you look at someone like Brian Chesky at Airbnb, he's a classic, big personality, outgoing, extroverted kind of leader. But then there's other contemporaries of his, like Patrick Collison of Stripe, who is a very intellectual, more introverted, more soft-spoken kind of leader, or Stuart over at Slack, who is very much a guy who is looking inwards and very calm. So there's many different ways to lead, and all of them can lead you to success. Yeah, I love that. All right, so this podcast always goes by too quickly, right? We always run out of time. It's just how it happens, especially when you're in an engaged conversation. So before we go to the sort of wrap up, Chris, I want to thank you for spending some time and jumping on with us. Um, the, the couple of things that I I heard in particular were, one, just this this idea of awareness of a model of companies that can work and can grow, right? And you lay it out so beautifully in the book, but it's this, um, this approach of not having to go in and get, uh, I don't know, overly researched, but looking at the use cases and the case studies of examples of companies that have done this phenomenally well. I also love this part that we talked about at the end of uh, the leadership styles that go into these types of organizations, how you have a variety of different leaders, but this idea, and I just, I wrote it down. I'm going to keep this, this infinite learner perspective of being just curious and always wanting to learn and always wanting to evolve and not falling back on your playbook is so spot on. Um, and then some of the limiters, right? I think it's easy to look at the, what are the things that we should be doing and look at the positive growth factors? But a lot of companies fail in terms of operational scalability and they they fail on product market fit and they don't have those two things and those limiters become those anchors that weigh them down. So is there anything that we missed talking about around these topics or any closing thoughts that you want to add? So one of the closing thoughts I always like to add when we talk about blitzscaling is the final note that it's really important to blitzscale responsibly. And what we mean is this, when a company is growing that rapidly, springing up from 50 people to 5,000 people over the course of three or four years, it has a huge impact. And you're so busy growing the company, you sometimes don't always think about what impact you're going to have. You sometimes don't always think about, well, how, what kind of organization are we building? And I don't think it's any secret that in Silicon Valley, we've had some issues around diversity. We've had some issues around companies losing their way in terms of their mission. And a lot of that is because when you're growing, it becomes very easy to just get caught up in the growth story and just focus on increasing the numbers month after month after month. And there's nothing wrong with increasing the numbers, but you need to actually take a step back and think about why you're increasing the numbers and to what end. Because ultimately, 
in order to grow a company like this, we're super fortunate to be in an environment that has all these incredible things, the rule of law, educational system, financial system, trust, that allow us to grow companies this quickly. And it's really important for us as we grow these companies that we contribute back to and improve the environment we sprang from instead of degrading it and making it harder for people to follow after us. Oh, that's a, that's a perfect place to leave off of. And thank you for bringing that in and weaving into that. I, I think this is one of those topics that doesn't get its due, that we tend to focus on growth, that we tend to take a almost, um, uh, oh, I don't know, overzealously, yeah, or overzealously capitalistic view on things and tend to not look at what's the impact or effect that we're having, not only for day to day, but what are we leaving as a legacy? So thank you for bringing that in. That was a great place to leave off of. Chris, phenomenal talking to you. Thank you so much for hopping on today. And uh, I'm going to encourage everybody again to buy the book, Blitzscaling. What's the easiest way for them to get a hold of it? Well, if they want to find different places to buy Blitzscaling, they can just go to blitzscaling.com, B-L-I-T-Z scaling.com. Amazon is usually the cheapest, but wherever you have to find books. By the way, if you get the Audible version, Reed reads the introduction and I read the rest of it. It's actually read by the authors, which I know is a big thing for a lot of Audible listeners. Fantastic. So definitely check that out. And if you are interested in hearing more from me, you can just go ahead and follow me on Twitter at Chris Yeh, C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H. You can find me at ChrisYeh.com. And if you're really super duper interested in blitzscaling, let's say you're the CEO of a company, you want help in doing workshops or something like that, I have another company called Global Scaling Academy at GlobalScalingAcademy.com that can help you with that as well. Outstanding. All right, Chris, happiest and best wishes for you and your recovery. Thank you for hopping on today. It was such a great conversation and we hope to have you back on again. My pleasure, Todd. Anytime. All right. That was really great. I was so excited to have Chris on today. Fantastic speaker. He knows his stuff. He has a great turn of phrase. He is uh, an amazing person to interview and just a fun person to get to know. And I was really glad that we had an opportunity a few weeks ago to sit down and actually have a conversation face-to-face and then to go and do this podcast. So a couple of things that I thought were really key here, and we've talked about it in the intros, is this idea of scaling and blitz scaling and how fast to do it. He takes a really radical approach that is a struggle for most organizations on how to bring that information back in. What does that look like? How does it matter? Where does it matter most? And, you know, one of the things he sees is, you know, we'll see some of this slower growth and then all of a sudden it'll speed up later, right? And how to capture that, how to get that hockey stick approach that we're all looking for. And then what's the reaction to investors? The other thing that I think Chris does a really great job of is this notion of, how to work with investors, advisors, and bring people on board, they're going to help you be successful. So if you want to follow Chris, and I strongly suggest you do, you can find him on Twitter. It's Chris, C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H. He also uses the same thing for LinkedIn. And believe it or not, that's also his website, chrisye.com. And his book is Blitzscaling. You can find it at blitzscaling.com, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Strongly suggest you read it. Fantastic book. And it was great to have Chris on. This is the last podcast of 2019. 
and we'll be going into a new format in 2020. I'm excited to announce that on a Toddcast we'll have in the next week or so. And then in 2020, we'll go to a whole new format and start talking about the CMO and the chief experience officer. I can't wait to divulge more information. And then finally, for me, if you'd like, strongly suggest you pick up a copy of Beyond Product. Beyond Product is in interviews of about 85 different executives in and around Silicon Valley, asking them about the five stages of growth, what it looks like and how to get there. Those are available on Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, at local bookstores. And you can also follow us on this podcast, of course, which is foundersplace.co, the place where exceptional founders grow. Thanks, everybody. Have a fantastic holiday season, and we'll look forward to one more conversation and then hitting 2020, the ground running. Take care. You've been listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. For past episodes, blogs, and more, visit us at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. And thanks for listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.